Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. He ranks as the first Major League Baseball player to win both the Rookie of the Year and MVP award in the same season. Known for spectacular defensive plays, he's an impact player who once crashed into the then unpadded outfield wall at Fenway Park. Those walls are padded now. His name, Fred Lynn, and he'll share his center field view of favorite stadiums. Later, the NBA's Western Conference Finals continue this weekend in Oklahoma City. Thunder Beat reporter Bill Haston will take us inside Chesapeake Bay Arena, where football-crazy fans have embraced pro basketball. And Mark Madoran will talk shop, where Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones says yes to pro football in Las Vegas. But first, the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, the last remnants of Baylor University's Floyd Casey Stadium came tumbling down last weekend. The stadium press box was the final structure to be demolished. Following the 2013 season, the Bears moved into their new venue, $260 million McLean Stadium. They had played 64 seasons at Floyd Casey. Next season at Ford Field in Detroit, Lions fans could very well see cheerleaders on the sidelines. As of last year, the Lions were one of seven NFL teams without a cheerleading squad. A cheerleading decision in Detroit is expected in the coming weeks. Other NFL clubs with no pom-poms on the sidelines, the Giants, Bears, Bills, Browns, Packers, and Steelers. In an update on a story we've brought you before, the minor league Hartford Yard Goats never-ending road trip just may continue. The AA affiliate of the Colorado Rockies has played its entire 2016 schedule on the road. That is due to delays in construction on their new stadium, Dunkin' Donuts Park. Stadium Authority Chairman Charles Matthews laid out the hard truths in an interview with WTIC Hartford. All evidence suggests that the stadium will not meet substantial completion by 11.59. So we have to certainly weigh our options. My best read as chairperson, based on the evidence I have, suggests that 
the team will not be playing baseball on May 31st. Now it appears it could be July before the team christens its new ballpark. It's causing other teams in the Eastern League to scramble as they prepare for more home games to host the Vagabond Yard Goats. Pro Basketball's minor league, the NBA D-League, continues to add franchises. 22 teams will compete next season with more expected in the following years. That means arena expansion, according to league president Malcolm Turner. You know, the, the, the notion of venue and facilities, we're also seeing the right progression in the caliber and quality of our venues as we continue to grow as a league. Terrific example of that, the Long Island Nets, they will play at Barclays in year one, but eventually transition to Nassau Coliseum, which is undergoing a $100 million renovation. That will house the Long Island Nets in year two of their existence. Nassau Coliseum said goodbye to the NHL's Islanders at the end of last season. Well, Colorado State University's athletic director reports progress is being made on the school's $220 million football stadium, and it will be completed on time and on budget. AD Joe Parker reports stadium capacity will be set at 41,000, and the venue will be open in time for the Rams' home opener in 2017. And a Colorado-based manufacturer of vaporized devices, cartridges, and other marijuana-related products has formally submitted a proposal for naming rights at Denver's Mile High Stadium. OpenVape reports that they have the financial means to assume obligations of the current naming agreement, which may cost more than $6 million annually. No word yet that if the cannabis oil company gets the naming contract, they will keep the name Mile High. Bill, that is the very latest. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. I don't know if there are many players who have given stadiums more of a workout than the guy we are going to talk with. One of the great players who had a great gusto for the game when he played. Fred Lynn is our guest. And uh, Fred, first of all, before we uh, cover the stadium's beat and have some memories of some of your uh, favorite and fond ballparks, let's, uh, let's find out how you're doing. I know everybody would like to know what you're up to and uh, and how you're feeling. Well, actually, Bill, I'm I'm feeling pretty pretty good. I'm uh, an avid golfer right now. I, I would love to do a little bit more fishing. Uh, when I was playing ball, fishing was the new that I took to uh, get some release, especially playing in, in Boston in the <laughs> in the hotbed of uh, the fan fervor back there. But um, I'm doing well. Just got back from Boston. Uh, my wife and I, um, I'm doing some stuff for the Red Sox. They have a legend skybox and I host that for their clients uh, three or four times a year. And like I said, I just got back from doing that. You know, you're one of the guys. You came out of the college ranks. You played for Rob Dato at USC, so that puts you in a very elite group of players. You played during an era when college baseball and the stadiums you played in were very, very small. Tell us about the transition coming out of college baseball and then presto, a year or two later, you're in some of the greatest ballparks. Take us through the sensation of going from college baseball to that. You know, uh, thanks for bringing up uh, my USC days with my coach, uh, Rod Dato. Um, I've often said on the air that I learned more about how to play the game of baseball from uh, Rod than I did at any other time in my life. And when we played at USC, we played on a stadium called the Boulevard Field, and it was very small in certain areas. 
You know, it's just like most stadiums uh, that were built uh, in in the 1900, early 1900s, wherever they were, they built around the area that they had to build in. And so our right field was uh, almost a, a carbon copy of Fenway Park. It was about a 30-foot fence uh, because it was pretty short. It's only like 290 feet down the line. So they had a big, tall fence in right, and then it jutted way out the center, which was like 420, and like 410 in left field, and then it went down to about 320 in the left field line. And it had a wooden fence and then a chain link fence, and <laughs> the football team would practice on the other side of that wall. That's where the field was, and actually they came through our field to get to where they had to go, which is kind of comical sometimes. <laughs> and I hit that wall a number of times, uh, and, you know, it, it was wood, and it would crash and, you know, make a big big sound. And the guys, when they're playing football, they'd peek. They'd open the gate and see what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't have many people that would come out to the games. So, you know, some students would come out, um, mostly scouts and maybe a dad here or there. But we never uh, played in front of big crowds. Even when we got to Omaha, uh, for the college world series maybe we'd have 10,000 maybe so when i got to the big leagues and started playing in front of a lot of people it was very different uh, i i really enjoyed playing in front of a lot of people i never particularly liked playing like in oakland in the in the bad days when there'd be 3,000 people out there uh, i didn't like that very much you, you feel like you're alive when the stadium is is rocking it's, mm-hmm. especially if you're like in yankee stadium when there's 55,000 people and they don't like you um, that just makes you alive. It makes you, I think, it makes you perform better. You know, uh, I think of the beautifully padded walls of Fenway Park today, and I remember there was a time they were not always as well padded, and I think <laughs> you can speak to that probably as well as any baseball player alive. You want to take it? There's your setup. I think my legacy to the game is, at least one of them, is the fact that uh, I was directly responsible for getting padding on the wall. In 1975, we played the World Series against uh, the Big Red Machine, the Cincinnati Reds. Back then, the Green Monster, they called it that for a reason. Uh, About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And then you had the scoreboard in the middle there, but none of it was padded. Um, and you know, the scoreboard itself, you know, they, they put the numbers up and, and for the innings, just like in Chicago, and those things protruded out. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. But the concrete wall, um, that did a little bit more damage when you get that full speed. And game six of the 1975 series, Ken Griffey Sr. hit a ball out there, and I tried to run it down, and I ran out of real estate, and I hit that concrete full speed and um, I went down and uh, everybody thought I was knocked out but I really wasn't I was totally conscious but I had no feeling from the waist down Mm. Um, I don't know what happened there but anyway I remained motionless because I thought I may have broken my back probably two or three minutes later I could feel that tingling sensation like uh, you experience when you hit your funny bone and I started to feel that running through my body and I said oh I think I'm gonna be okay and I just kind of stood up and made sure all the parts were still moving and working and uh, i said you know i could i could still stay in and but you know everybody saw that the commissioner of baseball was there everybody in the world was watching that game and so the next year they they started putting padding on some of the walls not all of them but they that's what that was the start of it fred lynn is our guest one of the great players who had a great gusto for the game when he played take us through some of your favorite ballparks and memories places where you enjoyed playing fred you know um most of the parks 
Bill, when I played, were the older variety. I never got to play in any of the new ones. And the difference between the American League and the National League in those days is the American League had their ballparks had character, if you will. Um, some of the National League parks, they all look the same to me. Philly, Pittsburgh, uh, Cincinnati, I couldn't tell one from another. But the American League parks all had something a little different. And you being from Chicago, you remember old Comiskey. And oh you know, I, I was born in Chicago, and I used to go to Comiskey quite a bit as a kid. And uh, the exploding scoreboard, you know, that was a big deal back in those days. <laughs> and I remember when uh, the home plate had a little uh, automatic uh, air brush, basically, would you know, it could blow the dirt off home plate, and the balls would come up from behind the umpire. You know, these are all Bill Beck things. Um, but that ballpark was a, it was a big park, 363 down the lines and 440 to center before they moved the fence in. Mm-hmm. And it, when they did move the fence in, it was kind of a chain link thing and it had a little bit of rubber on it. And I remember going back there one time and I tried to climb that thing. You know, I, I, you'd always practice sticking your spike in the fence to see if you could climb it um, before the, the play ever happened. And I could see that it would, it would hold my weight. Well, I went up and I stuck my spike in a ball that was going to go over the fence and my spike stuck and I, I kind of got twisted and it didn't come out right away and I, I kind of mm. went down very awkwardly but fortunately um, I had a, like a Gumby body and, and I, I bent rather, rather than broke <laughs> And but I remember that one uh, pretty well it could have turned out to be like a Bobby Valentine type deal where mm-hmm. it didn't work out so well but there were a lot of stadiums like that in, in Detroit same kind of dimensions 440 to center there was a light pole in left center. It was about 410 out there, and it was in the field of play. These are the days when, you know, guys just say, well, well, they're not supposed to, you know, hit it that far. You'll never get back there anyway. Yeah, well, <laughs> it could get back there. And, and, you know, you had to know where these things were. They're like landmines. Um, and so balls were hit out there. You had to know what park you were in, um, where the warning track was, how many steps you could take before you hit these things. And all those things played into the way I, uh, the style I played um, defense. Mm-hmm. And every park, uh, I could name Jesus God, but every park that you played in back then was different. Even in Yankee Stadium, um, it was the most uneven field ever. Um, one of the things I do now when I get to go on new stadiums is I go up in the outfield and I check it out. Mm-hmm. And they all look like pool tables. They're perfect. I mean, it couldn't be more level. No bumps, no dips, none of that. Well, Yankee Stadium, I don't know what it was built on, but center field, when I ran from second to center, you actually went uphill a little bit. And then towards right center, there was a dip. It kind of dove down a little bit. And if you were right, you actually threw almost uphill to get back into the infield. And then they had these six-inch sprinkler heads like Rainbirds, that kind of stuff. That's yeah. how they watered the field. Mm-hmm. Well, those plates were plastic. And if you hit one of those plates, you tear up your knee. Mm. So I'd have the – and they, they sank a little bit uh, underneath the field level. So I used to have the ground school come out and put the sand on them just to level them off. And I knew where every one of those was in my area. Mm. And <laughs> So these are things you have to think about um, that the, today's player doesn't have to worry about. Um, I'll give you another one. In Seattle, when they built uh, the Kingdom, um, they played football there. Well, the football field ran east-west on the baseball field. And where they had the sideline for the football field, they had these six- to eight-inch strips that were, like, tucked. And it ran right through center field. So if the ball hit that, it could carry them anywhere. 
So you had to say, okay, am I going to play in front of that strip or behind the strip? <laughs> uh, and, you know, if you played behind it, well, then you took the chance of a ball hitting that and, and you might miss it. If you played in front of it, you turn around, you're, you're like, man, there's 150 feet behind me. Fred, if you were building a ballpark from scratch, say I'm an architect and uh, I know you and so I uh, I give you a ring one day and I say, you know, Fred, you played. Uh, I'm sure you have some thoughts about how to build a better ballpark. But is there anything in your mind uh, that you think is really, really important in this new generation of parks that we're seeing today? Um, that's a really good question, Bill. And to be honest with you, as an outfielder, I think the fence should be high enough where, you know, just can't hit a, a bullet line drive and go over it. But you still like to see it low enough where an outfielder can get over it to, to make a great play. You don't want to have it like oh, in, in Texas um, back in the day and in Kansas City where it was 12 feet tall. And, you know, nobody can jump 12 feet that I know of um, and go over the wall and make a, a great catch. Between 8 and 10 feet, somewhere there where a guy can get up and over, you know, that's fun for outfielders, and fans love to see that too. So that's one of them. Um, the other would be, for the fans, get the seats as close to the field as they can. Like in Fenway, uh, there's just not a bad seat. The, the fans are right on top of you. Down the left field line, there's only two feet between the seats and the field. And then, then they have seats on top of the green monster where you're looking right down on the guys. Mm -hmm. um, that would be very important to me for the intimacy field that you feel as a player when you go on there because there are people right on top of you. Um, that works both ways. Sometimes if they're if you're not playing well and they're letting you know it, well then you know you can hear everything they say. But uh, on the flip side. Um, when it's loud, it's really loud because they're right there. And for a fan experience, I would say move them in as, as close as, as you can. I know our listeners are just very happy to hear your voice, hear that you are doing well and enjoying life. It sure has been fun. I want to wish you all the best. A lot of continued success and happiness. And, and I know our audience appreciates uh, hearing some of your thoughts about some of the great parks. Well, thanks, Bill. Uh, uh, thanks for uh, letting me talk about uh, some of the old stadiums. And, you know, one that I didn't get to mention is my old Northsider friend, uh, uh, Wrigley. And I got to play there just briefly, but uh, that's a pretty unique place, and I'm glad it's still there. Fred Lynn, our guest. A pleasure to visit. hasn't taken very long for the Oklahoma City community and on a larger scale, the entire state of Oklahoma to develop a genuine love affair for the sport of professional basketball, specifically the Oklahoma City Thunder. Our next guest is a guy who covers it and understands it and gets it and a great basketball fan in his own right, going back to his days growing up in Houston. Bill Haston is a sports writer. I like the name already, Bill. He works with the Tulsa World, and among his beats is 
is the thunder. Bill, this has to be a fun time of the year for you, and uh, I would imagine you have memories going back to when this franchise was recruited to Oklahoma City. Did you think it would work? Bill, if you reflect on the circumstances that brought the NBA to Oklahoma, it's just unbelievable because if not for Hurricane Katrina, if not for the damage that occurred in New Orleans that forced that franchise, the Hornets, to seek a temporary home elsewhere, there wouldn't be an NBA team here now. The Oklahoma City people built that arena with the hopes of eventually maybe getting an NHL team. And so Katrina strikes in September or late August of 2005. Oklahoma City has an aggressive mayor named Mick Cornett who immediately contacted David Stern and offered, hey, if the Hornets need a place to play, keep Oklahoma City in mind. That was the pitch. Uh, And within a couple of weeks, the deal was done. And the Hornets, with a rookie Chris Paul, uh, came to Oklahoma. Opening night sellout by season's end. The Oklahoma City Hornets were 11th in the league in attendance. Most games were sold out. And then there was a second season of Hornet basketball in Oklahoma. They also did very well that year in attendance. And it was at that point that David Stern began to really, the commissioner at the time, began to really pay attention to Oklahoma City as a potential market. One thing led to another. An Oklahoma City guy, Clay Bennett, purchased the Sonics, attempted to get an arena built in Seattle. It didn't happen. Moved the team to Oklahoma. You draft uh, Russell Westbrook that year after having drafted Kevin Durant the year before. So you were outfitted for success right out of the gate. So the people here are really spoiled rotten in regard to NBA basketball because there wasn't <laughs> much of a build. The first year was, was you know, tough. But for the most part since, four Western Conference finals in six years and, and consistently been in the playoffs with consistent all-star appearances by Westbrook and Durant. So you're right. I mean, this is traditionally a college uh, football and college basketball market. It, yeah, I marvel at how much more educated the fan base is here today versus that first couple of years with the Hornets and that first couple of years with the Thunder. It's it's night and day. It's it's a legitimate NBA market now. Take us inside a game at the Chesapeake Energy Arena. What's it like? How do the fans respond to the game there? It's funny because a lot of the national media who come in, especially for the first time, always seem struck by how close a Thunder crowd is to a college crowd. Uh, the noise levels are among the highest in the league, especially that first couple of seasons. That first playoff series against the Lakers in 2010, uh, I still consider to be the gold standard for decibels in that arena. It was deafening. Now, it was deafening a few days ago when they closed out the Spurs uh, in game six. But, boy, that first year against the Lakers, when they won game three, when Oklahoma City won game three and got that first playoff win as an Oklahoma team, uh, it felt like the building was quivering. You mentioned that, uh, and I think this is a great yardstick, something that you mentioned previously in this interview, and that is that the fans have picked up a lot of the nuances of the game. They get it. They're really good pro basketball fans. How long, Bill, did that process take? Oh, probably four years. I mean, it's now even uh, when you turn on the talk shows, callers refer to certain officials by name and are 
very familiar with opposing coaches and opposing players. And that took four or five years to, to really develop as, as you would expect. But I can remember as a kid in, in Houston and some of the fans near the court were on a first name basis with opposing players, opposing coaches and some of the officials. And it has, it has developed kind of into that, especially with the people in the lower bowl of the seats who are there every single night. Bill, of course, this team came about because it was removed from Seattle and replanted in Oklahoma City. Are the people of Oklahoma, do you think, pulling for uh, the restoration of some kind of franchise there in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, only a handful of fools would feel good about what happened to Seattle because now there's a relativity. How would these people feel if the Thunder got yanked? If the Thunder uprooted and moved elsewhere, they'd be devastated. Seattle had the Sonics for whatever, 40 years, and then they're gone. So I think there's a, an ability to relate now to that void that would be left. And listen, Seattle at least still has the Seahawks and the Mariners. Oklahoma City would be, you know, it would, it would rip a lot of hearts out if the Thunder were to move elsewhere. So I think there's a real empathy for what's going on in Seattle, and I think – of course, in the Western Conference, how good a rivalry would that be to have a <laughs> Seattle team and the Thunder? It's too good a market not to be in the league. And those people supported the Sonics, and they deserve a team. Well, Bill, you're about to make another drive here over to Oklahoma City. want to wish you all the best. You have a great assignment. Continue to have a lot of fun with this, and we wish you well. Bill, I appreciate your time very much. I enjoyed it. It is a pleasure. My pleasure, Bill. Bill Haston, who writes for the Tulsa World Media Company, does a great job, and you can check him out on Twitter, at Bill Haston, H-A-I-S-T-E-N-B-I-L-L. That's one word. That's our program for this week. Bill Hazen now saying we hope that you enjoyed it and inviting you to be back with us next week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.